What does it take to live a life that pleases God? That's a simple question, right? Not a lot of words in it. Not a lot of syllables. Pretty straightforward. No hidden meetings there. No agendas. What does it take to live a life that pleases God? Yet despite the simplicity of that question, that simple question has plagued people for centuries. And my guess is this morning that for some of you sitting here, it's bothering you a little bit on the inside. And quite possibly, it's been bothering you for a long period of time. It's not isolated to how you feel this morning. The path to pleasing God has led people in some unfortunate destinations. Uh, for some people, they would flesh out that answer and create this plan uh, where the, to them, pleasing God, the pursuit ends with the absence of certain vices. And they became known for the things that they do not do, and they, that's the flag that they fly. Uh, these are the people that hold fast to the mantra, don't drink, smoke, or chew, and don't date the girls who do. That's, just, that's good practical advice, by the way. I just want to share that, okay? For these people, abstaining from their activities is the key to life that pleases God. And certainly God hates sin and God desires holiness for our lives. But if that alone becomes our pursuit, then we quickly drift over into the bondage of legalism that Christ died to set us free from. And so for other people, the path is less about activity and it's more about knowledge. And the path of pleasing God becomes to become a, uh, the Word of God doesn't become a manual for living or a or place to receive instruction. It just becomes a source of information. This basically uh, becomes a curriculum that we're trying to master. And they would say the life of pleasing God, you've arrived there when you uh, arrive at certain theological litmus tests. If you believe this about creation, this about the end times, and this about gifts and different things, then once you get to that place and you come to a place where you understand everything correctly, then you've, you've come to that place. You've come to a place where your life is pleasing God. But the reality is all of us would give testimony, I think, this morning of knowing people who have sound theology, who have a good handle on the Word of God, but their life gives little evidence of transformation in regards to growing in their love for God and in their love for people. Now, they know the book, but it is yet to transform them. And so that alone, academics cannot be the life that is meant to pleasing God. Now... Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1 again this morning as we continue our series uh, called Rooted Through the Book of Colossians uh, with a message entitled The Life That Pleases God. Now, some of you this morning, I know this on the front end because uh, I have to make sure that I don't get there myself. Some of you, uh, before we go down this path and begin to look at this passage in a chapter 1 verses 9 through 14, some of you just heard me say the life that pleases God and you're thinking, great. I've been coming to church for a long time, and finally, someone's going to give me the, the list. Finally, someone's going to produce this list that has eluded me, and I've been looking for And once I lay hold of this list, everything else will kind of fall into place. And uh, for some of you, uh, just let me give you a word of warning here. That, that's not my intention here uh, this morning. And specifically, for those of you who would be honest this morning and say this, that outside of Jesus Christ, God's greatest gift to humanity is the checklist... And I'm one of those folks. Amen? Love a checklist. You may take this message and go, oh, he just produced a checklist. And, and I'm going to get that. I'm just going to. And I understand that. Nothing brings me greater joy sometimes than creating a checklist and systematically marking everything off. And nothing keeps me awake sometimes at night knowing that some things on my checklist did not get marked off that day. Right? And for those of you who would fall within that category as I do, it's going to be very tempting just to take this list out of Colossians 1 and just go, oh, there's a checklist, and, and I'm going to sit down at the end of every day with this list, and I'm going to evaluate, or I'm going to wake up every day and read it and make sure that I get these things in. 
Now, this is a practical passage of Scripture. There certainly are some characteristics, but it by no means is exhaustive. We could go to other passages of Scripture and find different lists and perform the whole total of what God's expectations. But it is an incredibly practical passage of Scripture. Colossians chapter 1, uh, last week we began setting the stage, defining that Paul was writing and writing to address some false teaching called Gnosticism and, and their desires, finding out in chapters 1 and 2 who Jesus Christ and the gospel is, and then chapters 3 and 4, uh, as a result of that, what our life should look like uh, out of that truth. And so, uh, now here's, here's my guess this morning. My guess this morning is that I'm assuming that why you're coming here is because you want to know what it looks like to live a life that pleases God. Now, some of you, that may not be totally true. Some of you felt guilty, and the person sitting next to you pressured you into coming. Thank God for that. Amen? And for some of you, you know, you know, you know, I don't know why. Honestly, I don't know why I'm here. But for most of you here this morning, uh, you want to live life that, that pleases God. You know, no one had to drag you here. No one had to make you feel guilty or those things. It's like the guy was sitting in, in bed, and uh, alarm clock went off. Time change weekend. Didn't get all the sleep he needed, right? And uh, he, he just went, he just, I'm not, I'm not going today. I'm tired. I lost an hour of sleep. And those people at church are mean and hypocrites and those things. And, and there's nothing you can say that's going to make me get out of the bed and go this morning. And so his wife just said, you know, we do this every week, really. I mean, every single week. And so if he just goes on and rails about, well, I know this about this person, I know this. And, and so he just leaned over his wife and he just said, hey, listen, give me one good reason why I should go to church this morning. And she said, I don't need one. She said, why? She said, because you're the pastor. Get out of the bed. Get your clothes on. We're going to church, right? I'm assuming that the reason most of you are here is you want to learn how to please God. And at the end of your life, you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, not Jesus. Is that the best you could do, right? And so he is going to give some characteristics of what a life looks like that pleases God. Some of the things that should be present in our life. Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Let's pick up the text here in verse 9. We're going to look down this morning at verses 9 through 14. He says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Is this an incredibly uh, powerful passage, a lot of incredibly important theological truths that practical in your life, some things should alter and, and some mark your life, but that if you believe these things, these things should be present in your life. And so in describing this uh, passage here, when he says this out there in verse 10, uh, he says that you, that you would be fully pleasing Him kind of where we got the title of it, that your life would, would look down, it would please God when evaluating and taking inventory. So he provides some characteristics. And then the first one we find in the passage is this, is that the life that pleases God is performing good works. And one of the great tragedies uh, as evangelical Christians is that so many times uh, we have this uncanny ability to experience pendulum Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? where we get on one extreme and, and we kind of push an issue and get it on an extreme and then all of a sudden we come to the realization that our position may not be totally biblical. 
And so all of a sudden we, we say, let's go to this side, and then we get on the other extreme and have this pendulum kind of Christianity where we never seem to get grounded in the middle where Scripture is actually at. And so there are all kinds of ways that we do that. Uh, sometimes it was in the realm of, of preaching. And for a long period of time, the pendulum was over on the far, I guess the right would be my right, on the far right, and uh, we became known as Bible-believing Christians. We became known and defined ourselves as what we were against, right? And so the, 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 the key word of describing that type of preaching is the word angry. Has anyone here ever heard an angry sermon, right? Yeah, that'll bless your heart. That'll change your life, right? And so it became this angry kind of preaching. It didn't matter what you preached on as long as you preached against something. And so we came to this realization that, you know what, we're, we fall off the ditch on the side of, of legalism, and so we've got to overcorrect. And then for the last a few decades, really, the, the preaching has kind of been characterized by this seeker-sensitive, don't, don't, don't stand on anything because someone may get offended, and uh, they may not come back, and so let's not, let's not stand on anything at all. And so this pendulum has kind of shifted in preaching circles, but there's all kinds of areas I could give you a list of things that we've, we've swung the pendulum on both sides. Uh, but one of the areas that we're not careful with this morning is this, is that as those who embrace salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, there is a tendency that any time we hear the word works, we think the pendulum is over here and it sets off our grace meter and we push back. Oh, we're, we're about grace. We're driven by grace. We're saved by grace. We're transformed by grace. We're secured by grace. And so any mention of works just doesn't feel good to us. And so we push back on that theology. I want you to listen to me this morning very clearly. Works are important. Works are incredibly important. The Bible says this in James chapter 2, that faith without works is what? Dead. Works give evidence of genuine salvation. There is no such thing as a believer who's not working, producing fruit in their lives. And so works give evidence of salvation, but also works impact those around us in a practical kind of a way. Look at verse 10. What does he say? He says, you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. I and mean, that's what we all want, right? And the first thing he lists in this, this category here of things that would please the Lord, things that would be considered walking worthy or living in a worthy manner, first thing he lists there in verse 10 is what? Being fruitful in every good work. Now, what does it mean to be fruitful? And that, that frankly, is a term that's Christianese, meaning no one outside of Christians talks like that, right? That no one who doesn't know Christ or doesn't sit in church circles, uh, no one ever comes home. How was your day? It was, it was, I was bearing fruit all day. It was incredible. Matter of fact, if you just walked up, someone didn't know what you were talking about. They didn't know Christ. They said, you know what? You may want to be one of the fruitiest, fruitful people I know. They may get real angry at you. And so what does it mean? Well, when the Bible talks about this idea of bearing fruit, we see that over and over in Scripture. Primarily, there are two categories of bearing fruit. One is attitudinal fruit. Or fruit of attitude, that, that would uh, fall within the list of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, all those things. We would call those the attitude fruit, okay? But the Bible also talks about action fruit. Do, about bearing fruit worthy of repentance. Do, doing the deeds of, of good works. In James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. And here he's describing this idea of action fruit. Now, I want to uh, tell you something this morning that I hope you've come to the realization this morning. And it may not be good news, but it's real news. Uh, we do not live in a Christian culture anymore. Do you understand that? We live in what's called a post-Christian culture. 
And there, there's not a agreed upon set of truth that we live in in this culture. And so the reality is, uh, when we just get up and, and, and have dogma or, and about convictions, but there's no action behind it, then people look at us and say, you know what? Uh, there no, every religious group, every political group has some certain convictions they hold to, and you're no different apart from works of service in the name of Jesus Christ. And so works are incredibly important. So when he's describing this list, he begins laying out. He says, I pray that you're walking worthy, that you're pleasing the Lord, being fruitful in every good work. Here's what I want you to embrace this morning. That if all you do is preach, 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 but you never love people, then guess what? They look at it as arrogant dogma. And this morning, what you and I have to come to the place of agreement about is simply this. It's what you believe. Now, listen to this. This is important. It's what you believe that shapes your character, but it's how you behave that impacts the people around you. Do you get that? It's what you believe that shapes your character, but it's how you behave or your good works that impact the people around you. And so because of that reality that works give evidence of real salvation, and because of that reality that, that my belief transformed me, but my works transformed the people around me, works are incredibly important. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a quote with you that has been attributed to Gandhi, and it's, it's hard to source the quote. I searched around a lot this week, uh, but most people would source this quote between Gandhi and uh, Stanley Jones, who is a friend of Gandhi's and a Christian missionary. And uh, so I shared this quote a few weeks ago, but just in case there's the rare, rare chance that you don't spend your week memorizing everything I say each week, uh, let, let me repeat it just, just one more time, talking about the power of works and giving legs to the gospel. And so reportedly they was having this conversation between Stanley Jones, a Christian missionary, and his friend Gandhi. And Gandhi said this, when Jones asked him, why do you reject Christ? He said, I don't reject Christ. He said, I love Christ. Now, not in the sense that we, we would describe it, but you get the gist. And he said, it's just that so many of your Christians are so unlike Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ, good works, bearing fruits, what he's talking about there. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. Can I tell you this morning? How many times I've had a similar conversation with people who said this, I hear what you're preaching. I've seen, I've seen Billy Graham on TV. I had a friend at work who tried to you know, share the gospel with me. But it was all this and there was no acts of compassion. There were no works of service to validate anything. It was just dogma. There's enough dogma in the world for every political group and every religious group. Listen, hear me this morning. If you want to live a life that's fully pleasing to God, if you want to work worth, walk worthy according to this passage here, then guess what? The first thing he lists here, Bearing fruit in what? Every good work. And so the question you and I should wrestle with this morning is this. Is the gospel that we hold to, is the gospel that we proclaim, does it have legs? Would the people around us be able to look at our lives and say, you know what, I don't totally know what they believe, but they may be, must believe something at an incredibly deep level because the way they serve and the way they, they love people and the way they come alongside and their humility, all those things, there is something different about that person. So Paul says, live a life pleasing to God, being fruitful in every good work, creating an environment where people are tempted to ask, what's different about you? The problem is this, is that so long we've talked about being different, living as different as Christians, and, and we've kind of uh, created this list. And we said, hey, here's the things that you're going to do, or more specifically, here are the things you're not going to do if you want to be different. Can I just tell you this morning that the world doesn't look at that as different, they just look at it as weird. 
And can I share with you this morning that weird's not incredibly attractive? But you know what's the most irresistible thing that we possess that can literally change the world and the people in your circle of influence? It's the unconditional and consistent love of Jesus Christ flowing out from our hands and feet. And when you grab their attention because they know that you love them and they ask you, what's different about you? You say, well, it's not different about me. It's what's inside of me. And his name is Jesus. I'd love to tell you about him. And so he said, listen, I want you to live a life that's fully pleasing to God, walking worthily, bearing, being fruitful in every good work. And secondly, when he describes the life that pleases God, secondly, he talks about growing in the knowledge of God. Chapter one, verse 10 again. You may walk worthy, fully pleasing, first off, being fruitful in every good work, and in addition to that, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now I want you to read that really slowly again with me this morning. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now if you're a Bible marker, then I would encourage you this morning to take something and mark and circle the word of God or the phrase of God there. Because he's incredibly specific and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing here. He didn't say increasing in the knowledge, uh, the knowledge about God, did he? He said increasing in the knowledge of God, learning to know God at a deeper level. And the problem is this, is that so many times in Bible teaching churches, what we do is this, is that we exchange the intimacy that God calls us to for information. And so many times when you walk out of this place and you're evaluating what you heard, uh, if you're asking this question, how good was the information without asking the question, what does God want me to do in response to this? Then guess what? You're missing the point this morning. And if you never walk out and hear a Bible study or hear someone preach a message or anything like that and ask the question, how can I take what I learn and what I've heard and go deeper in my walk with Christ? Then guess what? Your pursuit of Christ is academic only and academics alone cannot transform a hardened heart. And so he says you're walking or growing in the knowledge of God and, and Bible truth is important. Listen, it's, it's the gas for the engeline. I don't know if that's a word. That's in the Greek. Greek is engeline. It's actually engine, gas for the engine. And we've touched on this truth so many times in, in our Not A Fan series. We talked about uh, the great mistake of the Pharisees. They just come to the place where it's about rigid rules and, and they had all this Bible information, but it never, never changed, challenged their hearts. It never produced heart transformation. Matter of fact, when someone began to pursue intimacy, if they weren't as holy as they were, they criticized them. They even questioned who Jesus was. Luke chapter 7 Describes an exchange that way in verses 38 and 39. It says, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. We push back, oh, you know. How could they be so legalistic? How could they be so judgmental? How could they be so unloving? I want you to hear me this morning. If you come week after week after week and you absorb information at the exclusion of intimacy with God, then hear me this morning. You are on the path to be a Pharisee. You know what the Bible says about knowledge left to itself? If this, the goal becomes knowledge, that knowledge puffs up is what the Bible says or causes pride in our lives is what that means. But love edifies. 
Now, those are not mutually exclusive terms. The more I know, the more I should love Christ. And the more that I should want to know is because I do love Christ. But if you disengage at knowledge alone at the expense of intimacy, your final destination will be that of a Pharisee. He doesn't say we're to spend our lives in verse 10 learning things about God. He says increasing in the knowledge of God. Warren Wearsby, great Bible teacher, uh, pastor of Moody Church, famous church. Warren Wearsby uh, said this. He said, in my pastoral ministry, I've met people who have become intoxicated with studying the deeper truths of the Bible. Usually they've been given a book or introduced to some tapes. I love this. He says, before long, they get so smart that they become dumb. And I think he means that in a very pastoral way. He said, the deeper truths they discover only detour them from practical Christian living. Instead of getting burning hearts of devotion to Christ, they get big heads and start creating problems in their homes and churches. There's always a danger of substituting facts for relationship. The life that pleases God is the one that yearns to know more about God so that they can know God better. What a great statement. I can tell you that in 10 years of ministry, some of the meanest people I've met have also been some of the most biblically knowledgeable. Now, again, those aren't mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean I love the Word of God, so I don't love people. But what happens is those people, information becomes the goal, and, and this becomes nothing but a curriculum. Now, I'm going to master it. But I'm never going to take inventory. This is the kind of person that wants knowledge of God and reads the Bible, not, but reads the Bible for factual information and not to discern the heart of God. John Phillips, great Bible teacher, one of my favorite commentary producers, he said this, he said about knowing God. He said the wonder of the Christian life is that we can know God. We can get to know Him expositionally through His Word as His vehicle for revealing Himself. But not only that, we can know Him experientially. This is poetry. He said, He who came daily into Eden's shady vales to walk and talk with Adam and Eve will meet with us likewise in the cool of the day in our daily quiet times. He has torn aside the veil, flung wide the way into the holiest, and invited us to come in. He says we can come in whenever we like, we can stay as long as we like, and we can talk to Him about whatever we like. We can sit down where angels only dare to stand. We can open His Word and say, Speak, Lord, for Your servant hears, and He will reveal His mind and heart and will to us. That is the wonder of the Christian life. And so the life that's spent pleasing God is bearing fruit and good works. And it's also growing in knowledge, not just about God, but the knowledge of God. And it's also choosing joy with growing consistency. Now, I want you to hear me this morning. I said choosing joy, not catching it. Can I tell you this morning that I've met lots of people who are waiting around to catch joy, but it never seems to hit them? They catch something, but it's not joy, all right? A whole lot of something else. And I'm just, I'm just waiting. I'm just, you know, I'm in a bad mood, but eventually uh, I'm thinking this big current of the Holy Spirit is going to come along, and I'm going to catch some joy in the net some, someday, and, and God's going to alter my course. I want you to remember where Paul is writing from, Roman jail. And I want you to embrace the fact that happiness cannot, hear me this morning, happiness cannot be determined by what happens in your life. Joy is, is not an environment. It's, it's not something that comes along that you catch. Joy is a choice that you make despite the circumstances around you. 
Let me put it plainly, just in case I'm not being plain this morning, right? Let me put it plainly. A habitually moody Christian should be an oxymoron. So many times we just kind of sweep that under the rug of personality, do we not? And we have this idea that a person can lack so little joy and be moody and grumpy and, and all those kinds of things and just a nasty disposition before they came to know Christ. And then they receive Christ and now they're just they're a Christian who's nasty and moody and you know, fill in the blank, all those things, right? That there's no growth in that. There's no growth in joy. We just sweep them around. Well, that's just who they are. I love being in a counseling situation where we discover that a person just maybe lacks a little joy in their life. That's the overflow. That's causing havoc on their marriage. And here's what they say. They just turn to the other person. That's just who I am. And you know that when I, you married me. So you need to love me for who I am. Can I remind you this morning that God's expectation is that for a believer, because of what's inside of us, the Spirit of God in a relationship with Jesus Christ, joy is available at all times in every single circumstance. But the difference is whether or not you and I choose to embrace it. Look at verse 11. He says, I pray that you're growing, verse 10, and the fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge, not about God, but the knowledge of God. Then he says, I want you to be strengthened with all might. Yeah. I, I need some of that. I need to be strengthened. I need the power of God in my life. Why? Look what he says. Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power. Even better. It's not about me and my personality. It's not about me being a type A or a hard charger. It's, it's about that power is because of who he is. That's a good word. Keep reading. Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power. Why? For all patience. Ooh. Patience. Listen, I want the power of God in my life, but not for patience, right? And that didn't sound fun. Matter of fact, that sounds like hard work. For all patience and long suffering. Listen, nobody's inviting their friends to come hear a sermon about long suffering. You should come to my church next week. We're talking about long suffering. You'll love it. Next week it's on patience. Bring your friends. That's what it says. Strengthen with all might. Yes, according to his power. Yes. Why? For all patience and long suffering. Well, I guess if this is my lot, I'll just, I'm, if God's called me to suffer, and if, I just, if this is the best situation God's going to give me, I'll just hang out here with joy. I cannot tell you how many times I've met people who were martyrs for Christ that lacked a little joy. And that's about as nice as I can put it, right? Oh, God, God, God's called me to, to suffer. Oh, and God, God, but I'm content. Choosing joy with growing consistency is a part of living a life that pleases God. What empowers us to do it? It's His power. How available is it? It's completely available. Well, how much of it do I get? He says, with all of His power, verse 11 says. What for? For patience and long-suffering with joy. 
So it's not what I'm doing, it's how I'm doing it. It's just as important in living a life that pleases God. Now, patience and long-suffering in the, the English translation, they kind of have the same connotation, but in the original language, patience, uh, the word for patience, has reference to dealing with difficult people. That's the connotation in the original language. Does anyone in here this morning know someone who's difficult in your circle of influence? Would you just signify that? If you're sitting next to them, would you just... No, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't do that, right? We have a joke in, in ministry sometimes that, that every now and then you've got to deal with someone who's difficult. And the joke is among pastors that say, ministry would be easy if it weren't for people, right? People, even saved people, can get difficult. They can get in the flesh, they can be, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this as a pastor, they can be annoying. You know what I've got to do in spite of that truth? And listen, that's a truth. I could give you a list of names. I wrote, wrote some names down up here, actually. Just put those on the screen if you would. No. You know what God's called me to do? If I'm going to live a life that pleases Him, I'm to come alongside them and love them anyway with joy. I'm not to sit back and complain, oh, woe is me, I've got to do these difficult people. No, I choose joy. Not because I'm a great person, not because of my personality, but because of His glorious power residing inside of me. That's a choice I can make. I'm not a victim to the people around me, and I'm not a victim to the circumstances around me. Because the Spirit of God, the power of God, is inside of me, empowering me to choose what in my flesh I would not want to choose. So the word patience in the, in the original language has reference to dealing with difficult people. The word long-suffering or endurance in some of your translations literally means to remain under. We would say that it means to hang in there and it's kind of uh, during difficult circumstances or what we would call trials. God's empowered. God's power is inside of me, empowering me. Everything that I need is right there to live joyfully despite difficult people and trying circumstances. And everything problem you have in life will fall under one of those categories. And the only question is not whether difficult people will come, whether trials will come. The only question is will you choose joy? And with the people around you go, wow, there's something different inside of you. The only difference between living with His power in those times and living without it is our unwillingness to admit that we need it. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge, not about God, but the knowledge of God, choosing joy in difficult circumstances. Here's the last characteristic he lists in this passage of a life spent pleasing God. last one is this, and this is honestly sometimes the hardest one. The life that pleases God is living with a grateful attitude. Look at verse 12. Verse, back up to verse 11. I'm strengthened with all might. How much? According to His power. Why? For patience and long-suffering. How? With joy. Verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. We'll, we'll talk about that phrase. It's a little tricky. Do you get that first part, though? Giving thanks to the Father. We have so little time left this morning, so let me just tell you this. Complaining is a common sin, but it's still a serious one. Because complaining strikes at the character of God and says either A, God, you're not good, or B, you're not good enough in this circumstance you've not provided. I mean, complaining strikes at the character and the love of God and the provision of God in our lives. We thank God for what He's given while at the same time feeling we, we, we should have gotten more. We seem to think that if God really loved us, then we'd have less problems or more money or more stuff or more influence or less illness and fewer difficult times. But we tell God we're grateful. 
Here's the question you and I have to wrestle with. If we only could evaluate it by what comes out of our mouth, because what comes out of our mouth reflects what's really what's in our hearts, is what Scripture says. Could you convince God that we're grateful? Could you convince God based on what comes out of your mouth? Could we make the case that says, I'm living with gratitude? The reality is that God owes us nothing, but so many times complaining is rooted in a sense of spiritual entitlement. When I gave my life to Christ, and lives are all unicorns and butterflies. There's still a lot of thorns and thistles. Living with a grateful attitude. To be honest with you, this, this week I do my best that before I preach a sermon to you, I preach it to myself. And I take inventory and I meditate on these truths. And I'm just trying to understand what they mean. And I ask hard questions, not, not about as a pastor, how do I want to communicate, but as a believer first. And I got a little discouraged this week. Because when I got objective and honest about some of these things in my life, uh, and I took the title of pastor off of my name, would these still be as prevalent as they are as a personal relationship with Christ, not not as my profession? And I wasn't incredibly impressed uh, with the answers that I had for myself. And so my guess is that for some of you, you you hear this list and you think, oh, growing knowledge of God, not about God, and good works, and choosing joy, patience, long-suffering, living gratefully. This exactly describe my life, and so I'm going to slither out of here guilty. Come back again next week and get a spiritual spanking, right? I want you to listen closely this morning. Guilt is not a bad thing. Matter of fact, it's guilt that's used in the process of repentance, which is the catalyst uh, for grace to be dispensed, which gives us the power to change. So this whole idea of, oh, don't make people feel guilty. Listen, if you and I are sinning, then the Holy Spirit living inside of us should convict us of that sin. The Holy Spirit teaches, He comforts, and He convicts. And so guilt's not a bad thing, even though some churches, oh, it makes them nervous. But let me tell you what is the bad thing. It's being enslaved to guilt. Experiencing guilt, confessing sin, becoming repentant, receiving the grace of God, changing and growing in holiness is is a good thing. But when I become enslaved to guilt, listen, Christ died to set you free, not to chain you up. And so we come to this place and you say, well, I just can't forgive myself because, you know, some of these things. Listen, hear me this morning. If you can't forgive yourself, do you understand something? You have higher standards than God. Because he said, if you confess your sins, I'll forgive them. First John 1, 9. And so if you can't forgive yourself for anything, then you have higher standards than God. Someone just confessed it right there. Just let out a cry. Ah! <laughs> well, the good, good news is, when I started digging into this text, it's a truth that I know, but I don't always live out of. The truth, the good news is this. If you're feeling a little guilty, good news is this. Number one, you, you can start today. You can start today. Now listen, that is not some cliche. That's not some Christian pep talk from Brad Osteen, okay? My hair would never be that beautiful, although his hair is beautiful. It's not spiritual cheerleading. Look at verse 10. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Now, the word walk there, and I don't have time to, to, to dig into this. The word walk there in the original language, it, it's important what it is in the original language, but it's also important in the original language, the tense, 
that it's in past tense, future tense, aortist, all those kind of things. I'm not going to give you a, a Greek lesson, okay? In the tense of that verb, that verb walk, the tense of it literally can be rendered to set out walking or to set out on a new departure. You know what that means? He's saying you can start fresh today. This is the life that walks worthy. And it can start today. If your life doesn't look like this, you can start on a new departure today. And so by God's grace, confessing it, God will give you the power and empower you to start today. That's not a pep talk. That's right in the authority of Scripture in verse 10. Here's the second piece of good news, and we'll wrap it up this morning. second piece of good news is this, is that you have everything you need to succeed. You have every spiritual resource that you need to succeed. Here's a theological fact that I want you to embrace this morning. Any ground that Satan has claimed in your life has been, has do, has been done with your permission. He is a defeated foe. He has no authority in your life. And so any area of your life where he has claimed some territory, he has done so by your permission. Look at verse 12 and 14 quickly. Verse 12, he said, I'm giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. What does that mean? It means I've inherited everything in the present, all of his glorious powers, what the verse says. And I've also inherited a home in heaven. So my future is secure. Okay? Verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. That means Satan has no authority in my life. He has no power over me other than the power that I give him by permission. So my future secure, verse 12, my present, I have all the power to defeat darkness. What about my past, though? Verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. My future is secure in Jesus Christ. I have all the power that I need in the present, and every stupid thing that I've done in the past has already been forgiven. And so that verse tells me that I have everything I need to succeed in living a life that pleases God to walk worthy in a manner of my Savior has called me. So if that were a math equation there, it would go like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you need to live a life that pleases God. Christ has forgiven your past, gives you power in the present to live with victory and provide a future home in heaven. Let me ask you an important question this morning as we wrap up. What do you have to worry about? You see, when I, when I grasp those truths and I start to reckon them so or live out of them, you know, I come to the realization that my, my future is good. My, I got all the present I need and the power in the present. My past is forgiven. Guess what? You and I are too blessed to be stressed. Amen? And so here's the key to it all. The key to it all is this. It's not to work harder. It's to draw closer. It's not to work harder. It's to draw closer because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the life that pleases God and it's available to every person in this room right now. Right now. Would you bow your heads this morning?